It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Now, let me know where you are listening in the world because we like to get an international quizzer on occasionally on the radio. Uh, so if you want to play our hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? 10 general knowledge questions. The more questions you get right, the better the cabinet job you get. Let me know where you're listening to the podcast. It could be somewhere glamorous. It could be somewhere boring. But just email me, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on the radio very soon. But coming up on the podcast today, we are living through history right now. But how big a deal is it, really? Will we actually make the history books or will it just be a footnote? Who better to ask than the history boy himself, Dan Snow? Uh, he's coming up is the big thing on the podcast today. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. So, we were going to talk about text messages that you regret sending, but as James reminded me when he came in, we've done that before. I can't remember what, what it was that the, um, it prompted us to do that. But anyway, uh, let's talk about Matt Hancock anyway, and uh, this text message of uh, Boris Johnson texting uh, Dominic Cummings to say that he was totally effing hopeless. And... Um, screenshots the the world my phone has more pictures of screenshots than anything apart from possibly uh pictures of my dog um and uh you know they get passed around around you know this, this is not it's not dominic cummings is not the only one keeping the screenshots all of this um is this just a new phenomenon james that we're addicted to screenshotting everything and passing it on to other people yeah, well, I feel really left out because um, reading about all these exciting screenshots and text messages people are passing around um, and then now being reprinted in the Times, it made me realise that I'm only in I'm only in one group chat. Are you? And there's just not much drama in it. It's just me and my university friends texting each other and sort of replying to each other once every once every week. We get around to replying, and I just feel a bit sort of left I'll out. Add you, this... I'll add you to a WhatsApp. Can I be in your Can I be in your I'll, group I'll chat? Yeah, yeah, a yeah. good one with lots of gossip. You can join the GB News WhatsApp group if you like. <laughs> Because <laughs> that is, <laughs> I should have talked about that on the radio. <laughs> India, are you a fan of yes. a screenshot? Yes, I love a screenshot. They're a weird thing, aren't they? Because they're a kind of you're aware when you're screenshotting that they're kind of an infringement of the person's privacy, really. Because they're 
you're not supposed to grab texts and linger over them and share them. But there is something really irresistible about them when somebody says something extraordinary or atypical or fascinating. Um, so, yes, I love them. But I think I feel a bit I feel guilty about my love of them. And what do we think? I know we, on on the sort of the the the, the point of uh, uh, the, the 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 detail of the text that Dominic Cummings has released. I mean, we're all guilty of texting people things they want to hear just so they'll stop texting you. But actually, one of the most striking things about the totally effing hopeless exchange was there was quite a big gap between Dominic Cummings texting <laughs> Boris Johnson. I can't remember how long it was, and Boris Johnson actually replying. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's entirely possible that Boris Johnson did think Matt Hancock was hopeless, but also it's just you just text people. I mean, particularly actually, the relationship between journalists and politicians. You text politicians stuff all the time that you don't think. Just saying, oh, it was brilliant. That oh, it'd be great to catch up. Hope you're well. It's all going very well. You're, you know, I don't actually think all of those things necessarily. <laughs> that's that's such a that's such an interesting point, and you can completely imagine that um, Boris Johnson, who, as we know, is a people pleaser, and is perfectly happy to tell anyone whatever they want to hear if if it's gonna if it's gonna if he's gonna get what he wants out of the situation. I think is completely believable. And also, you can imagine trying to manage someone like Dominic Cummings, who's coming <laughs> to you every morning with a you know a great big binder full of these sort of mad ideas to hire misfits and weirdos. And I imagine you do get into the habit of going, oh, fantastic, great idea, yeah. Um, I mean, there is a, there is a sort of text, you know, I think where. Um, so Dominic, I come Dominic coming suggesting, and sort of Boris is saying, "Oh, fantastic idea! I'm all, I'm all ears." And you can just imagine that he's sort of, you know, sort of typing this out, sort of, yes, just keep the kind of, keep the slightly, keep the slightly insane advisor happy, and pretend that we're listening to everything he says. India, have you ever texted someone something that you didn't totally believe? Oh, all the time to, make them stop, <laughs> to make them go away, because otherwise, you know, there's no, um, there's no kind of definitive way of stopping a conversation that you that you're really kind of done with you know and we're done with about eight texts back so you go yes yes wonderful can't wait hurrah yes well done great and then they stop <laughs> and this does have slightly the whiff of that about it and i suppose yes and i suppose that's that's true actually you can't end you can't, you know, in a normal in a, hu- in a human conversation you can walk away from it and i suppose mm. actually in a zoom conversation you could end it but it's a sort of never-ending um, sort of WhatsApp or even an email exchange, just like in um, in in Rupert Everett's excellent diary. It's called Red Carpets and Other Banana Skins. I think the first volume. Um, there's a very funny bit where he and a friend of his, I can't remember who it is, um, uh, talk on the phone. It's pre-text and pre-Zoom and pre-everything. And when the friend gets bored of talking, he says, bored now, bye, and hangs up. It's quite, <laughs> quite useful in texting as well. Yeah, just ends. Yeah, I'm just leaving. Yeah, yeah, or you, or you leave the WhatsApp group. That's quite enough screen, <laughs> screen grabs of GB News. I'm leaving the WhatsApp group. <laughs> um, James, I want to talk to you about your column in The Times today. Virtue signalling is often a force for good. You and your contrarianism. <laughs> uh, coming in here with your big ideas. Um, but uh, this... Having virtue is in and of itself not a bad thing. It's when people wave it around in a slightly sort of um, superior way, possibly. That might be more of an issue. Exactly. So I, I kind of, I'm kind of trying to get into the habit of whenever I have a sort of automatic emotional reaction to something, trying to kind of remember what I thought and then follow it up and see if I can substantiate it or whether, or whether actually what I think is just me kind of getting angry for, you know, emotional reasons, not logical ones. Something that always has infuriated me is, as you say, people going on, this annoys me especially on Twitter about how virtuous they are, how fantastic they are, how charitable they are. 
Um, and it's always sort of wound me up and I just sort of view it as completely pointless and empty and meaningless. And I was like, well, I'd love to actually look into this and see if it is completely meaningless or whether self-regardingly going on about how wonderful you are has any actual benefits. And the sort of more I read about it, and I was reading this fascinating book, which is about how uh, what we call moral revolutions happen. So how we can have societies, moral values change. And in this book, one of the examples the author uses is... Um, the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. And what he says is that a sort of major factor in that was the number of very well-meaning sort of middle-class intellectuals who were very, very keen at the end of the 18th century to show how humanitarian and how virtuous they were. And they were all going around sort of, you know, signing petitions and making a big deal about their opposition to slavery in a way that a lot of their motivations, as the guy in this book says, they were probably quite self-regarding. They loved showing off how virtuous they were. But collectively, this began to sort of change the mood in society. And suddenly we got at this point where actually the kind of consensus on what was good had changed. Um, he's got a particularly good example where the first anti-slavery petition was brought to Parliament in the end of the 18th century uh, by a group of sort of well-meaning Quakers. And they were just thought, no one's going to listen to this. Um, no one's going to take it that seriously. No one thought it was going to pass. So all the MPs in Parliament thought, fantastic opportunity. We can stand up and make all these virtue signaling speeches, how much we hate slavery, how wonderful we are. Everyone will know how good we are. No possible consequences. But when they did that, everyone suddenly thought, oh, hang on the kind of definition of virtues changed a bit here and everyone was sort of emboldened to move on. So this is my kind of argument that actually, unfortunately, um, annoying middle-class people uh, <laughs> promoting their own sense of personal virtue might have good consequences. Um, although I think there's not been a very popular opinion. I don't think it's something that people really want to believe is true because it is so uh, sort of viscerally annoying. Have the readers taken issue with you this morning? I, haven't look, I, I read it last night, but I haven't read it. Uh, I haven't looked at the comment section this morning. I've got a few people to persuade in the comment section. After this, <laughs> I'm going to go in and start some arguments. <laughs> India, do you agree with Jay? Because I, I wonder whether there is a difference between being a small group of people willing to stick your neck out against the settled order on uh, slavery mm. and tweeting that you've become a vegan every five minutes <laughs> uh, and uh, just because that, you know, or that you've... Um, you know, that sort of, you know, hashtaggery and all that sort of stuff, completely meaningless. Um, there is a difference, isn't there? But maybe one person's completely meaningless virtue signaling and someone else is, you know, early flag waving uh, towards, um, you know, bringing about real change. Yes, I've had the, uh, the, the opposite art from James. And I used to not mind it when people said, I think the bad thing is bad. That seemed fair enough if you wanted to get it off your chest and now i now find find it completely intolerable um that people i mean i and i used to think virtue signaling was a kind of irritating phrase in itself and now i completely understand it um i think there's an enormous difference between as you say protesting slavery and announcing for example that you are kind the be kind thing drives me absolutely bananas. <laughs> why you would tweet, why you would exhort other people to be kind and tweet constantly about how you are kind and hashtag it. And, and I mean, it's just kind of completely emetic, isn't it? I mean, either quietly go about your business being kind or, you know, support kindness where you come across it. But but there are some people whose entire sort of purpose and now and often quite mean people I note where I know them personally, often quite kind of yes. bitchy people. Well, that's a that, that's a, there's a big and you know Jeremy Corbyn's kind of gentler politics yeah, was, yeah, that, exactly. was was born out of not entirely. In fact, Jay, am I going to quote one of your columns? Did you write about somebody wrote recently about companies 
who were most key. It was you, wasn't it? Companies mm. are most keen to like hashtag BLM and you know mm. do blackouts on their social media. Also, probably had very low numbers of uh, ethnic minority workers. And was it? Was it? You? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, this might have been this. May, maybe not exactly me, but I think I've touched something similar. And I mean, I think it's so. There's a fascinating. Um, when I was writing this column, I was researching this thing. There's this phenomenon called moral licensing, which is this kind of sociological phenomenon, which is if people do one good thing. Um, scientists have found that sort of they sort of feel they have this license to be bad in other other areas of their life. I think actually Matthew mm-hmm. Side wrote about this at the weekend. I think this is the same phenomenon. I think people can go, you know, tweet away on social media about how wonderful they are and sort of think, oh well, I've done my moral good act for today, and they just can't. They just find it very hard to imagine they're a bad person, and they just feel licensed to go and be horrible in other ways of their of their lives. And there's an actual sort of phenomenon that's been measured. You know, scientists get people into into rooms, and if they commit virtuous acts they find that they're more like to cheat in sort of various games and stuff. Um, and I think that's a real sort of phenomenon that happens is that... Um, it's a bit like, I'm, I'm much more likely to eat a big bun if I've been for a run. Exactly, it's, exa- it's exactly, <laughs> that is exactly that. I think that is exactly what's happening. <laughs> Who knew I was, I was, yeah, I was, that was a side to, I was just looking at some of the, com- most of the comments on your column are very nice, James. They're much um, nicer than sometimes the ones that I get. Although someone says, goodness me, I think I'm very virtuous ploughing through that lot this morning, James. <laughs> But most of the, I won't read out the praise because it will just embarrass you. No, think, please, please, I see it. I do think it. it's really interesting. That, uh, but I suppose it's, is it actually backed up? Because on, particularly on Twitter and Facebook and that sort of thing, it's so easy to signal your virtue. Whereas actually, you know, going to the trouble of tabling a petition in Parliament and facing the wrath of your political colleagues is slightly... You're slightly sticking your neck out a bit more, or the Quakers were, rather than... Utterly empty gesture politics. That's true, and a good a good argument against my column is that um, if you look at the way that humans sort of need to signal virtue in evolutionary terms, um, it's a very important part of like fitting in the social group is having everyone else in the social group believe you're virtuous. But usually, displaying your virtue comes with some kind of cost. You know, you're sacrificing something. You're potentially, you know, if you're going to tell someone off being unvirtuous, that's a potentially dangerous situation for you. So you're really showing your commitment to it. In evolutionary terms, um, what people say is that Twitter's basically provided this massive platform where people just have this completely free opportunity to go on about how wonderful they are with no consequences. <laughs> and that's perhaps why it annoys us so much, because it's completely sort of, it is quite, it is, as you say, quite meaningless. It's, yeah, and it's, it's just the, the emptiness of it, I suppose. Um, one other thing I want to talk to you about is travel and this idea that uh, you might be able to go abroad if you've had both jabs. Is that something that excites you, India? Yes, I was thinking about this all day yesterday because I have had both jabs. Um, it would excite me enormously. I'll slightly believe it when I see it. Um, I'm I'm kind of um, rearranging my summer on the with the understanding or the inkling that nobody's really going anywhere unless they want to really, really inconvenience themselves at either end of their journey. And I don't, I don't think. <laughs> you did. I enjoyed your column at the weekend, mainly because it was the exact opposite of my column on Saturday. You thought that the G7 barbecue looked like fun. Yeah, I did think it looked like fun. I thought it looked more fun than some sort of hotel with sticky <laughs> carpets or, or, or terrible conference centres. It looked like, you know, horrible. They had the opportunity to have stand between their toes. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't, did they? They put down like a metal walkway so that yeah, they didn't they actually go anywhere near the sand. But that's their own silly fault. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> over. <laughs> Angela Merkel walking along the metal... Uh, this, this little long metal walkway um, uh, to look at some mackerel and then walking back while Boris Johnson <laughs> desperately tried to find a beer that uh, Emmanuel Macron would, uh, would drink. 
it all just looked a bit. I tell you, it, it looked like somebody put a Tory party conference drinks reception actually on the beach, mm. uh, and that's not a good thing. Uh, James, uh, do you want to go abroad? Or are you happy going down to Cornwall with with India? Um, no, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be. I'm very depressed not going abroad. I mean, no, no, no offense to Cornwall or to India. Um, and we actually have no holiday plans together. Assume you're speaking uh, facetiously. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I, think, um, I think there's a good TV, there's a TV season that we get our columnist pairings from each day. So a bit Luke, like the trip with um, yeah. Steve Coogan and uh, Rob oh. Bryden. Me and India could drive around Cornwall together, um, having a sort of bantering. Perfect. Would, would you be there? I don't know if you'd be there. I think I'd, I'd, maybe I'd turn up and set you challenges or something. I'd set, yeah. I'd set you off, <laughs> off kayaking and then see uh, if either of you made it. Yeah. Libby and Rachel could go off on Libby's yacht. Uh, I don't know where we'd send Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich, but there's, de- there's definitely a... I would absolutely watch this. Channel 5 would buy this, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Good, well, I'm glad. We've, we've built a format. As, mu- as well as putting the world to rights, we've built a format. Lovely to speak to you. Nice to see you, James. Nice to see you, India, on the big screen as well. Yes, uh, sorry, I, I, I didn't realise that was going to be happening. Otherwise, I'd have brushed my hair. No, do you know what? It's lovely. It means we can have a nose in your kitchen. Yes, I like, I like India's uh, porcelain chicken. It's like bread, isn't it? It's the James is going to know what I'm talking about when I say it's like bread. Like bread. What the 70s sitcom? Yes, that's where they used to keep the money, wasn't it? Yes, it is absolutely where they kept the money. That's true. Yeah, yeah. James, James is completely black. Has no idea. Well, I've learned something. Wasn't born. Literally wasn't born. Literally possible. And you can read James's column in The Times today and India on Sunday. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Dan Snow. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is the Red Box podcast. Now, I'm absolutely thrilled to bring you this brilliant... He's such a clever man. He's also so excited about absolutely everything. This is my interview with Dan Snow. Just a little bit of history repeating... Yes, we feel like we're living through unprecedented times. We are living through history 
But how big a deal is what we're living through right now? History teaches us a lot, of course, allows us to understand how people and societies behave, how wars erupted, how pivotal moments in history have changed the world. Well, who better uh, to talk us through all of that than Dan Snow, TV historian and host of the brilliant History Hit podcast. Morning, Dan. Morning, sadly, lots of people could probably talk you through it better, but I'm the best you got for the next few Shh, minutes. Not Sorry, at man. all, not at all. Now, uh, the first thing I want to do is start with uh, our most recent history, which is back in November when you came on the show and you thought that COVID would ultimately be forgotten by history. Is that still your view? Uh, I think it's a reasonable assumption. Uh, I think... Uh, it, it obviously, it's so difficult, isn't it, to disentangle what's co- what, what is COVID and what is the economic fallout from COVID. If we are entering a period of considerable inflation, first period of inflation in the developed world for a generation, then clearly the economic effects, and if, and if therefore we get a kind of even greater um, rising of, of nationalism, populism, kind of political movements that spin off from the effects of this economic and health crisis we've been through. I think that could be different. But I think already you're seeing in the States like an extraordinary myopia. Like, I mean, it's like it never happened. Now, if, if you look at the US press, you look at commentary on Biden, you look at what's going on. I mean, they, 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 I mean they, they've moved on so fast. They've reopened more aggressively than we have here. And because I think we avoided a mass mortality and mass morbidity event, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think it's a good chance. I don't think it's going to be as... Dr- we all sat around last March, April, thinking it's the most amazing we'd ever lived through. I think we're going to forget that. I, I don't... Yeah. Now, some people will be saying that 150,000 dead in this country, millions dead around the world. Uh, that, that's a lot of morbidity. But your your point is it's not millions and millions and millions. Yeah, what, at what point does, you, does it reach a mass morbidity? Do you mean to sort of put on a par with a Second World War or something like that? Well, the, the, the Spanish influenza... So far, uh, we are looking at death rates that are not. I mean, obviously, to, to achieve this, we've had to spend an unprecedented, like vast amounts of money, and dislocate our, our global economy to a scale that has never been done before, really, in peacetime. But, but so far, it's it's a fraction of the um, deaths from Spanish influenza, the so-called Spanish influenza, the Great Influenza of nineteen. 1819, of course. So I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not in, in any way minimising it, but I'm talking so sort of strategically. Um, it, we we avoided the, 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 you know, the Justinian plague, the Black Death, the pandemics that destroyed Native American society following the arrival of, of Christopher Columbus and Europeans, uh, the so-called Spanish influenza. We are not looking at mortality events like that in our society at the moment, um, but the the, the the economic and political effects may be profound. And, and and unfortunately, unfortunately, Matt, it is too, too it's too soon to say because that's the only an answer that historians always give me on the podcast, and <laughs> I'm going to give you now because we just don't know. So until today, we could we could have guessed what Boris Johnson's views on Matt Hancock were, <laughs> um, but now we this is the nature of history. We we get information, we look at the archives, we we things are revealed after a certain period of time. In this case, quite rapidly, so Dominic comes. <laughs> but but we now that, can say how, how long does something need to have. What, 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 what period of time needs to have passed before something can be judged uh, to be history? 
I mean, I sometimes, I mean, we, um, when we talk about politics on the show quite a lot, I always sort of think actually everyone involved probably needs to be out of office for you to at least partly trust their accounts and uh, and that sort of thing. Is there a period of time for you that, that something goes from being a sort of current event to being able to look at it with a historian's sort of hat on? Well, I think obviously um, the National Archives releases things when they're 20 years, certain things, government records when they're 20 years old, um, which I think government records are obviously super important because you can tell what they were actually thinking and talking about. Uh, so the 20 year rule, yeah, obviously longer for, for more sensitive things. Um, definitely everyone out of office, everyone starts, even though political memoirs tend to be fairly ropey sources, they start speaking during in those memoirs and around the publicity, the talks they do, you get a bit of a more of a sense of what was uh, what was going on and then after someone dies you might in the old days you might get their papers or that, or that kind of thing a, a more a more I was talking to Lady Glenn Connor who wrote that sort of surprise bestseller of last year and she was Princess Margaret's best mate and lady in waiting and stuff and she says that when she dies she's got a version of her diary a book which is absolutely like all guns blazing like super exciting the stuff they couldn't get through the lawyers for the publication and so that's kind of a traditional model where you might get stuff after people die so yeah i mean you're talking 20 years obviously when people drive planes into buildings in 9-11 obviously when uh donald trump tries to stage an authoritarian coup in the united states those things you are aware you're living through history at that moment but sometimes only as the months pass do you realize just how gra the gravity of them and for example we learned this week as well even a, less than a year later the extent to which Donald Trump's Justice Department did go to try and overturn that election. And we're going to learn a lot more as the years go by. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. I mean, can you imagine when Bill Barr starts to talk, for example, or, you know, his, um, you know, his, his, his man, DOJ. So, and, and we are going to learn more about the, the management style of Boris Johnson, our prime minister, as, as the years go by. So, uh, yes, it, 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 it takes a bit of time, unfortunately, but that's why what you guys do, it's always referred to as the first draft history. It's essentially <laughs> important. You know, the, no, but the, what you can glean at the time, the, 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 un, the unattributed sources, the official stuff, you know, that, that is what historians in the future, obviously, that's the foundation block. Um, you were talking about, you know, people leaving their papers and, and that sort of thing. And in fact, uh, Pete in South East texting saying, in the past, history was drawn from a small field. Uh, now we've got this embarrassment of riches of text, audio, photo, video, um, and I suppose the question is, is that does that make history more uh, sort of easier to sort of start pulling out? Do we just have sort of too much noise? And digital, I mean, literally, as we've seen, you know, with screenshots of WhatsApp messages, that's very different to the National Archive releasing handwritten notes that Margaret Thatcher was passing around the cabinet table. Um, do, does that make in the future, when we look back on this period, will it be easier because there's all this extra material or? Does it actually just create a lot of noise? Do you think? I think it'll be. I think it'll probably be harder. Um, it also depends, of course. We're assuming that that stuff all survives, which is the great question that historians. When we're in the pub at the moment, team history sit round, getting very worried about how all these things will endure. Like if if WhatsApp is a private company, what what's their archiving policy? I have no idea. Like what if Mark Zuckerberg goes, oh god, we're spending too much on storage. Let's just sack off WhatsApp after five years or whatever you know so at the moment we're very vulnerable to a new digital dark age curiously but assuming everything kind of survives in some way and is searchable i think it's overwhelming it's, it's too much and that's why in america there are actually rules around government communications and what device they should take place on hence the hillary clinton email situation um and and the i'm actually not fair enough i'm actually not sure in the uk um if if dominic cummings and boris johnson's 
WhatsApping is even legal. I'd love to get an opinion on that. Is is that a considered a proper way to conduct government business? And and uh, should and and should there be? How should we look at archiving that? Because that's clearly essential communication at the very heart of government. Yeah, and, and crucial to his, future historians because if it's not being done around the cabinet table, uh, or maybe it was being done on a Zoom meeting or whatever, and now you know it's all if it's all being carried out, whether or not to sat the health secretary has been decided in a WhatsApp. Uh, group, yeah, that, that's and, a very different thing. And I can hear your listeners going. Oh, crucial for future historians. Like, I mean, yeah, that's really hard, my list of priorities. <laughs> but but I think it's really important to remind them that, that historians look at the past, not because they're kind of weird, um, although many of us are a bit weird, but not because we sort of just have a weird obsession with, with dead people that lived 500 years ago. We look at the past because we're desperate to understand this mad ride that we're all on. And the best the best lessons for us, the best the the, the best per areas that we can study is is previous experience like if we could study the future we would be studying the future we'd love to study the future but we can't because it hasn't happened yet so what what when when we're studying matt hancock and boris johnson and donald cummings relations in this vital time of crisis we're doing that because we're really interested to know how decisions are made how power is shared and how it is dispensed with in, at moments of crisis, because then when the next moment of crisis comes on, we might be able to do things better. We might be able to put things in place. We might be able to go, hey, let's, let's use a WhatsApp. Or we might just educate ourselves as citizens to go that when Boris Johnson and the health secretary are standing beside each other, I have full confidence in the health secretary, we might know that he could be talking absolute baloney. So <laughs> it is a way of educating ourselves, making our political understanding more sophisticated in the present and the future, not just because we happen to love talking about Henry VIII or Boris Johnson. Well, that stage will be ancient history. I, I was listening to your uh, your podcast. I know you've had Gordon Brown on the podcast. You tried to get Theresa May. Um, I wonder whether uh, you think that today's politicians think about their place in history and how they're going to be remembered, or are we so caught up in you know today's Twitter spat or whatever it is uh, that they don't maybe have the same sort of view on the arc of history as maybe their predecessors? I, it's a very good question, Matt. I, I've asked them, I've asked all senior politicians I've ever had on the podcast about this, and they don't seem, if I was a politician, and this is why I'd be a very bad politician, I'd spend my entire time, when I wasn't daydreaming about invading France, I'd spend my entire time um, sort of uh, working, working out what history is going to make of all these decisions I'm making. But actually, I've when I talk to people in the May administration, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, they claim they don't, they're not massively influenced by the hand of history. And what they're very interested in is um, voters in marginal constituencies and their changing opinions. So I, I'm surprised if I, again, if I was in Downing Street, I've got Churchill looking down, I've got Attlee looking down, Thatcher, I, I would be so aware of my, uh, that I'm, that I'm just the latest man, just the latest incarnation of this great historical process that's ongoing, but they seem to get quite stuck in the cut and thrust. And, yeah, and actually, maybe sometimes in terms of tackling the big long term issues facing the country, worrying less about the cut and thrust and, you know, where do we want to be in five years time or 10 years time? So we're not where we were 10 years ago. Might be slightly better. Um, the, the other thing, that, the thing I like about the History Hit podcast is it's not just sort of, I mean, you do do, you know, Anglo-Saxon kings and, and all of that, but you also do sort of the history of Eurovision or uh, Euros football or uh, Eddie the Eagle was a great episode. And the all of that is history because it's all sort of happened in the past, but it all sort of fits together. It's not just, I mean, I loved history at school, but lots of people didn't necessarily. Uh, but you're sort of pointing out that basically everything is history. Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess that's, um, I, I've always believed, I grew up kids, as a kid of journalists, I guess I always had a really powerful sense of whatever they were doing had a backstory. So whenever they did any story, 
So my dad and mum both covered Hillsborough, Northern Ireland, coal miners, yeah, 80s and 90s, stuff I particularly remember. It didn't, it all, they, their, their conversations always began with like, well, let's try and let's work out the backstory quickly of this situation. You know, what, what's going on? What's going on here? But, um, is, you know, with, with uh, changing attitudes towards the monarchy in the 1990s, whatever it might be. So I was just aware that everything really had this kind of a sense, every story, every, every, every contemporary story began, obviously, in the past. And so I've never had a problem going, history is not this kind of ring-fenced, uh, which a lot of people think at school, it's fascinating that people still come up to me going, I, loved, I, don't, I don't really like history at school because it was all, I thought it was Battle of Trafalgar, Industrial Revolution, Anglo-Saxons. And unless that link is being made constantly to present, I, I feel that history can wither slightly on the vine as a, as a subject for young people, other people to study. Uh, and I go, for me, um, Eurovision Song Contest is a great example of something with a really interesting history. Like, why on earth does that exist? What was it part of this kind of moment, post-war moment, of trying to create like transnational culture, transnational institutions, a transnational kind of awareness of people by a generation that just suffered in this like astonishing inter interstate violence. So I kind of, you know, having fun with it as well, of course, and, and having a bit of a laugh and how it's changed and the use of the English language. What, what does that mean? And so, yeah, I've, I've never really struggled to find the historical angle on on lots of things and and um that also means you get to, to talk about fun stuff like tom fordyce talking about the euros euro 2020 which is happening in 2021 which as i joked will be great for uh, twitter in 200 years time if it's not a if we're not living on a kind of barren dystopian hobbesian <laughs> wasteland post-nuclear post-global climate crisis if twitter exists or something like it there will be this brilliant argument among historians going when was the euro 2020 uh, when was Euro 2020? And the end, like people thought, like hills, historians dying on the <laughs> smallest possible hill. Sure, I can't imagine people having a small, uh, dying on a hill on Twitter like that. That seems very unlikely. Um, uh, you mentioned there about, you know, children, what they're taught in school and how you sort of need to bring it alive. There's a massive sort of debate raging in at least some quarters about what should and shouldn't be on the, the national curriculum, whether it's adding in more black history, decolonising the uh museums and all of that where are you on on this debate i think it's i'm really glad i'm not an educator and i I, because i feel overwhelmed and bewildered i'm a bad guest here max i haven't got a ready-made brilliant sort of opinion that's good welcome to times radio that's good we don't want people with strong uh you know thought out uh uh, views the whole point most of the time just saying i've got no idea Uh, that's totally fine i i think it's first of all there's a big problem in first of all history is a big subject right so so uh, it's everything that's ever happened. So how do you? And I think there's a, there's a there's a strong argument that says people should have a sense of the kind of national story of the country that they're living in, they're being educated in. I think it is a. I, I do get that, like a linear sense of of Iron Age to Romans to to where we are. I also think that I also think that we. Uh, it's really important. We're interested now in tech, and, in, and 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 so I think industrial history, scientific history is super important. Our constitutional history is really important. Scotland, there's a strong secessionist movement there. Issues around Northern Ireland, issues around sea borders in the Irish Sea that may or may not exist, depending on which minister you listen to. Like it's important to know what this entity is that we're living in. Um, but and at the same time, like clearly there is a call for talking about history that's been overlooked traditionally, like Britain's role in the slave trade, the, the role that the slave trade has played in, in creating, the, Britain, boosting Britain to become the world's biggest economy in the 19th century. So I have enormous sympathy. Plus, we teach history for two years less than our European partners do. So we allow kids to finish at 14, whereas everyone else takes it to 16. So we are asking 
a huge amount for like a couple of hours a week at best of, of, of mandatory uh, history time. And I, if you put a gun to my head, I wouldn't know what to teach. I, my, 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 fun of my only having met lots of teachers and been in classrooms, my, my first response is that we should allow history teachers to teach the history that they are personally enthused by and excited by. And that may differ in different parts of the country and different communities and different urban rural settings. And maybe we should sort of go with that uh, a bit because I think that the enthusiasm and the knowledge of the teacher from what I've seen is, is fairly essential, but that is a totally outsider's view. So Chris says every period of history has a name. Queen Elizabeth I, the golden age. What does Dan think this era will be called? I think this era will be called something to do with tech. Uh, I think it's fairly clear that the biggest stories at the moment are, um, are, are, are tech, so di- you know, digital, something, something like that. That's that's uh, that's a good that's a good answer. It does feel like that because that, that I suppose is the overwhelming thing because you know kings and queens don't play quite the same role in shaping society. Yeah, uh, and and I think we're moving from a period of American hegemony to a kind of multi well certainly a bi back into a kind of bipolar world, and so the, the, the like Pax America like there may be a there may be a kind of late Cold War um, last thirty years a kind of American the era American hegemony, but I think we're, I think tech is the big story here, and it will be remembered as a time when we invented the internet, which is still very young and. Um, and still, we have no idea where this mad story ends, but it's the biggest thing that's happening at the moment. That and climate crisis, which are unrelated, but uh, so we may, it may, it may be that, it may be, look, if, if there is a catastrophic climate crisis, we may call this like the, you know, it's like the Edwardian summer, but it was the last, it was, little did they know what was coming. They're all having a good time on their dating apps uh, and, and traveling, traveling around the world and going a holiday, and they didn't know what was about to hit them. I suppose that's the thing. Whereas you know, I learned in school who invented the uh, hay thresher and all that sort of thing. You know, Tim Berners Lee invented the internet. Uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. They are the same people who would have had huge impacts on uh, on society. Right, another question. Um, <laughs> this is very specific. Leo from Canterbury says, "Please ask Dan if King Harold had won the Battle of Hastings, what would the English language sound like today?" Well, that is a classic question from someone in Hastings, Hastings country, uh, Kent and, um, and uh, East Sussex. They love a bit of Hastings down there. Well, the English language would sound more like German than it does at the moment. And we'd have all our... Uh, it, when, when the Normans um, successfully imposed their rule on uh, England and various parts of Britain after the 1066, uh, if you notice, lots of, our, lots of our smart words, legislature, parliament, judiciary, uh, statute, th- those, those are... Uh, Latin French words. So the words of the ruling elite um, came to be uh, what were influenced by our Norman conquerors. And lots of the more grubby words, the Anglo-Saxon English Germanic root words um, like pig uh, uh, or or Viking words as well, Danish words, um, which were more kind of everyday you know, so so those those words um, have survived in modern English, but they are they're the words of the kind of masses and and the uh, the sort of political religious words, the, the, the corp, commercial words are often those of uh, Latin French. So our language would sound a bit different. It'd be a bit more like Danish and, and German. That's an excellent uh, question. Thanks so much for sending that one in. Uh, Clarissa asks, um, do you think historians should take sides in contemporary politics? I think he's referring to the fact you've 
previously said what you uh, um, thought about things like Brexit and that sort of thing. Uh, do you see yourself see yourself as a neutral record taker or biased pamphleteer? Um, so, so I'm certainly not a neutral record taker um, because I, I'm not a journalist uh, at all. So I, I do know contemporary work. I, I express opinions. So um, when, when I'm um, writing about the Seven Years' War in North America, I, I try and be unbiased. But of course I'm not because, of course, I essentially disapprove of slavery. Uh, and so therefore, I'm unlikely to spend tons of time in that book uh, sort of, well, uh, you know, we, we, all have, we all carry enormous bias with us. Of course we do. Um, we, for example, we all ca carry a bias, well, I hope we do, against uh, obscene violence, like, you know, genocide. So, for example, so we all, we all, uh, every book of history that is written and that I, I've written in the past is, is totally shaped by who we are in the present. But I'm certainly in the work that I do do when I express an opinion in the present, it's not even as somebody who has a history podcast and makes history shows. Uh, it, it's as somebody who has strong feelings. Um, and I and I welcome everyone from either side doing that. Um, but uh, I, I my strong feelings tend to be drawn from history. I look back at 2000 years of recorded English and British history, and I tend to see uh, the enduring links with Europe, the enduring effect that you, the lunar pull of Europe on British culture and politics. Other people have studied the same period and disagree. And, and I enjoy debating with those people. We have great fun doing so. But so, yeah, I think it's important that people shouldn't get upset when historians voice an opinion because that somehow affects their ability to then write about the Russian Empire 200 years ago in unbiased fashion. I think um, <laughs> there, you can have church and state within the brain of a of, of a writer, of a historian. But it's a good, it's an important question. And I suppose when I remember even when I was you know, doing my A-level history, part of what you did when you moved from sort of secondary school to your A-levels was was recognising there are different interpretations of history and being able to weigh up uh, and form your own opinion uh, so not necessarily there's a, there's a correct interpretation, but acknowledging there are different ones is part and, part and parcel of it. In fact, there was, well, a, there was a message in from, from Bill was talking about, you know, this idea of there being a correct way of interpreting history. That's just, you know, the, 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 the nature of opinions is that there isn't a correct way, but I suppose it's about making sure you have that conversation and, and debate in a civil manner. Well, Matt, you're exactly right. And so, first of all, what we're really excited about history is we're always discovering that what we previously thought was completely wrong and so therefore that does two things. Well, it does several things. One is it encourages historians to show they're working, a footnote, you know, saying, well, this is where I'm getting these ideas from. Um, you go and check them out yourself. Here's my, here's my working on that. It encourages us to be less concrete about the present. If we can't work out whether, as a previous question I asked, we can't work out whether Edward the Confessor did in fact promise the throne to William of Normandy or Harold. We don't know. We've got evidence and historians can kind of go back and forth. Well, that should make us a lot more uncertain about the present. So for, for me, that uncertainty about the past and the differing interpretations about the past are really something to celebrate because it should make us go, right, well, if we can't be certain about these, about why Britain declared war on Germany in the First World War, we should be a little bit less certain when we are absolutely marching in the streets today about lockdowns, about Brexit, pro or anti and I think it just adds a level of, of nuance there and is a reminder that it's these things are incredibly sophisticated and we get, we're gathering more and more evidence all the time. We now, we're now kind of a new generation of historians are coming along going, we might have underestimated the importance of climate. 
on, on political decision making in the past or of disease. Funnily enough, the COVID generation were going, you know what? Disease was pretty important in the past. Maybe we should think about that a bit more. So it's the, the, we're evolving our understanding of history and, and evolving a more sophisticated understanding of ourselves, of what makes us click, of what makes things happen, how things happen. That's fascinating. I sort of bring it right back to, uh, to to the modern day as well. Dan says, lovely to speak to you. I'm a big fan of the History Hit podcast. Who, can you tell us who you've got coming up soon? Who have we got coming up soon? We've got Ben Rhodes, Barack Obama's speechwriter, coming up. Oh, we have got great. Elizabeth Hinton, who's written an amazing book. Talk about reevaluating the past for the present. Just quick, she reevaluates black violence in America in the 1960s and 70s. It was called riots, it was called emotional outbursts. She says, it was a rebellion against unjust rule. It was a, it should be seen as like the Peasants' Revolt. It should be seen as a Northern Ireland, IRA activism in Ireland. This should be seen as po political violence against injustice. And that, that reframes the way we think about today, how it was policed, how the political response went. Super important book uh, and very, very, so a great example of an amazing story and just changing the way we think about the past and the present. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 